Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Our scripture reading will be from the book of Luke, chapter 2. And I would invite you all to stand with me as we read God's Word, Luke 2. We will be reading from verses 21 through 40. And I'll read the first verse. I'll ask that you join with me on the second. And we will continue every other verse. Luke 2, starting with verse number 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord." and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death, for he had seen the Lord's Christ." And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Aser. She was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending this child Jesus to save us from our sins, Lord, and to give us that redemption. Uh, that had been looked for for so many years. And now we get to experience that and we experience the blessings uh, that Jesus gives. We pray, God, that over these next few minutes as we study this text, that you would awaken our eyes to truths that maybe we haven't seen before, Lord, and help us to be 
uh, more like you and more like your son Jesus as a result of being here this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2, and we saw the account of Jesus' famous birth in Bethlehem. And uh, you'll remember his birth was accompanied by praise from angels. Uh, And then the shepherds came and visited Jesus and went and spread the news about his birth. And this morning, we're going to see two more people praising God for the birth of Jesus, Simeon and Anna. We saw last week that Mary and Joseph had traveled uh, 80 or 90 miles. I remember we put a map up on the screen and showed the distance that they traveled from uh, where they lived in Nazareth to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And uh, now our text picks up eight days later after the birth of Jesus. They're still living in Bethlehem at this point. It seems that they lived there uh, for maybe a year, year and a half or so. And Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, says that eight days were accomplished. So eight days after the birth of Christ, uh, they circumcised him and they named him Jesus. And so in Jewish culture, a child was circumcised on the eighth day, and that's when he was assigned his name. And of course, his name is Jesus, according to what Gabriel had told Mary to name him. And that name, uh, if you remember, Jesus is, it's an English transliteration of the Greek word Jesus, which basically is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Joshua. So whenever you see Joshua in the Old Testament, Jesus is the same name. And essentially what it means is uh, Yahweh saves, God saves. That's the name of, of Jesus, what it means. A very fitting name, obviously, for Christ. And so verse 22 says, the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished. That would be 40 days after the birth of Christ. Uh, They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, uh, this takes place in Jerusalem. And like I said, they're still living in Bethlehem, which is just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And so if we compare the timeline uh, with Matthew's account, you remember in Matthew's account, there's some interesting information about the wise men that came to visit Christ. And they gave him those gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then Herod tries to, to exterminate Jesus by killing the babies in Bethlehem and they flee to Egypt. All of that is left out in Luke's gospel. Uh, For whatever reason, he just doesn't include that information. And so he skips over that. And our text takes place uh, during that time when they're living in Bethlehem. And it says they went to the temple to to dedicate Jesus to the Lord. And so if you read Leviticus uh, chapter 14, you'll find out that in the law of Moses, it was required that if your firstborn child was a son, you were to dedicate him to the Lord. And uh, normally you would offer at the time of the purification a lamb that was typical. But if you were particularly poor, if you couldn't afford a lamb, uh, then there was an allowance within the Levitical law that you could offer two pigeons uh, or a turtle does as as an exception. And so we see here just in in verse uh, 24 that Jesus clearly came from humble beginnings. He was not born into a wealthy or prestigious family because they couldn't even afford uh, the lamb for the purification. Verse 25, while they're coming into the temple to do this, uh, verse 25 says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And so Luke introduces us at this point to a man named Simeon, and this is the only place Simeon's mentioned in the New Testament. There's not much uh, said about him, except that apparently he was a very righteous man. If you read the text, he's, it's, it seems to be implied that he's elderly, although it's not, it's not stated that way. But Luke tells us that Simeon is just and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that was a term that referred to the Messiah, 
Uh, they knew that one day there was one coming who would uh, bring salvation to Israel. And so they, they referred to him as the consolation or the comfort of Israel. That, that was a, a pseudonym for the Messiah. He was eagerly awaiting and longing for the coming of Christ. In addition to this, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit was uniquely on Simeon. Verse 26 says that it had been revealed to Simeon that he would see the Messiah before he died. And in verse 27, the Holy Spirit leads Simeon to go to the temple at the exact time when Mary and Joseph were bringing Jesus in. And as soon as Simeon sees Jesus, we don't know exactly how God revealed this to him, but he knew that this was the one. This was the child that he had been waiting for. In verse 27, it says he came by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit somehow uh, put in the heart of Simeon to go to the temple that day. And he, he sees the parents, uh, Mary and Joseph, bringing Jesus in. And verse 28 says, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. I can die now because you've fulfilled your promise. You've let me see the Messiah. The word translated here as Lord is, is not the typical Greek word kurios. It's, it's, uh, it's a unique one that's not used very much, despota. And it, it basically stresses the sovereignty of God, his control. And so basically Simeon is saying here, uh, this is not an accident. God orchestrated these events. You know, God had told Simeon that, that you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And then he led Simeon to the temple at the exact time when this baby was being presented. That's not a coincidence, he's saying. Uh, Lord, sovereign Lord, you, you caused this to happen. You're in control of these things. We saw last week how God used the census of Caesar to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill Micah's prophecy. Uh, God's, again, put it in the heart of this, this pagan uh, emperor to tax the citizens of the Roman Empire just to make sure that Jesus was born in Bethlehem to fulfill those prophecies. God is in control of even these seemingly random circumstances. And so here in this text, God brings Simeon to the temple at just the right time to see Jesus and to fulfill the promise that he'd made to Simeon that he would see him before he died. And verse 30 says, uh, and if you connect the four there at the beginning of the verse, he's connecting back to verse 29 where he says, you can let me depart in peace for or because mine eyes have seen thy salvation. To see Jesus was to see salvation. Simeon had a, a very clear understanding of what Jesus came to earth to do. We see this in verse 31, the salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at the things which were spoken of him. So God sent Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of, of Israel. If you read the Old Testament over and over, there's these indications of one that's coming in the future who's going to fulfill those prophecies. And so he refers to him here as the glory of Israel, but he's more than that. And you see in verse 32, he's a light to lighten the Gentiles. The, the term Gentile, if you're not familiar, maybe you're new to uh, the Bible, the term Gentile basically just means anyone who's not a Jew. So uh, those of us in this room that aren't Jewish, we can be grateful. We're Gentiles. And Jesus came not just to fulfill the prophecies of Israel, but he came to light, lighten the Gentiles. Basically means he, he, he was the revelation of God uh, to those of us who aren't Jews. If you read in the Old Testament, uh, all of God's workings centered around Israel and this, this group of people in the Middle East. And now with the coming of Christ, that bursts forth. And, and the salvation of God, the relationship with God isn't just limited to Jews anymore. It's open to all people, as he said in verse, verse 31. Gentiles can get in on this salvation now. It's interesting that Simeon recognizes here something that, uh, if you'll remember, Peter struggled with 30 years later. 
uh, Peter struggles to accept that Gentiles can get in on, on this relationship with God, but Simeon seems to get it. Jesus came to save people from all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. He's not limited to one race of people. And so while Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and the glory of Israel, he's also sent to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and thereby bring salvation to all people. Verse 31, Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Such an interesting couple of verses here where Simeon uh, prophesies that people would respond in two different ways to Jesus. Said they'd either fall or rise. They would either accept the sign or they would speak against it, basically deny it. Uh, Some would see Jesus as who he was. He was the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He was the Son of God, and so they would accept him gladly, and they'd follow him and listen to his teaching and become a disciple of Jesus. But others would reject him. And we think here of people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who rejected uh, Jesus and, and rejected his, his message. And the people's response, according to Simeon, would expose their heart condition, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. How they respond to Jesus uh, would, would be an indicator of how their hearts were before God. These people would be blessed or judged by their response. The one who has ears to hear, as Jesus said, and accept the truth of God would be saved. And the one who rejects Christ would die in their sins. And this, this reminded me of the, the parable of Jesus where he talks about the different types of soils. This is a very uh, well-known parable where a, sower, a farmer goes out and, and sows seed, and some of it falls on good ground, and it produces crop. Some of it falls on rocky ground, and it, it doesn't. And some of it falls on, uh, on stony ground, and birds come and get it, and all the different soils. And so the point is, there has to be a proper uh, heart. The heart condition is what determines uh, whether or not you're going to respond to Christ properly. You have to have good soil in your heart, as Jesus would say. So the condition of the heart of a person determines how they respond to the message of the kingdom of God. The one whose heart has been opened by God to receive the message of Christ is then able to respond in faith. The one whose heart is blinded like the Pharisees, they're unable to receive the gospel. And so Jesus' arrival would bring about this twofold response, dividing those who accept and follow his teachings from those who reject him and ultimately crucify him. And then Simeon transitions in verse 35, uh, this, this parenthetical statement about a sword piercing through Mary. And this seems to be an indication of the great pain that it would cause Mary to see her son rejected by so many and then ultimately killed. We know, according to John's gospel, that Mary was there uh, watching her her perfect son be crucified on a cross. And so the the pain that she would feel by this um, rejection of her son is, is what seems to be mentioned here by Simeon. Mary would see that Jesus was rejected even by those closest to him. Uh, you'll remember Jesus' brothers who grew up with him, his younger siblings, did not accept that he was a son of God until after his resurrection. And so even in the family of Christ, it's so hard for me to imagine this, but even in Jesus' own family, there were those who rejected him. He was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, uh, where they tried to stone him, and eventually he would be rejected by even one of his 12 disciples, Judas. So the rejection of Christ and his ultimate crucifixion is, I think, what Simeon has in mind here when he says, the sword's going to pierce through you, Mary. You're going to experience grief when you see how people treat your son. And then Luke, in uh, verse 36, Luke transitions to introduce us to another character, Anna, a prophetess. And she, she's 
Luke tells us she is of great age, and she's been married for seven years, and then she was a widow for 84 years, which means she would be about 104 years old, somewhere around there, if she got married at a typical time. Now, you could interpret the Greek uh, another way, and it could be read to say that she was a widow. She was married for seven years and then a widow until the age of 84. So she could be 84 here. Uh, commentators like to argue about which one it is. Either way, she was an elderly lady, and that's, that's the point here. It's possible that, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 38, you'll notice her response here. She seems to be hearing, uh, hearing overhearing the conversation that Simeon's having. And, uh, and so she kind of butts in here in verse 38 and says, she, she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So we know that uh, the text says, uh, back up a, a couple of verses, sorry, I skipped over this. The text says that she was uh, an elderly lady and she had spent the last several decades of her life serving God in the temple with fastings and prayers night and day. This was a very committed servant of God, this uh, godly elderly lady that had given her life to serve the Lord. And when she hears who Jesus is, she gives thanks to God, and then she begins to tell others uh, who, like Simeon, were looking forward to the coming Redeemer, that he had finally come. And so verse 39 and 40 uh, conclude this section by telling us, when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, uh, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew, speaking of Jesus, and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And like I said, there's, there's other events that, that Luke doesn't get into here, like the coming of the wise men and uh, Herod's slaughter of the children, and then they go to Egypt. All of that Luke, Luke doesn't include for us. He just focuses in on this event with Simeon and Anna. So Simeon uh, mentioned in verse 34, I want to go back here, uh, that not everyone would accept Jesus for who he was. Some would hear his message and would believe that he was who he said he was, and they would accept him, and others would reject him. And they would be judged for their rejection. And the same is still true today. Uh, People respond differently when they hear the message of Christ. Some accept him by faith and they believe what he says. And they become a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or a Christian. It's not just, oh, I believe that Jesus uh, was who he said he was. No, it's more than that. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. To follow his teachings. To follow his example. And those, those who respond to Christ in this way will receive the salvation that Simeon talked about. Those who reject Christ uh, will be judged for that rejection. The most important question then that each of us has to answer is what will we do with Jesus? Our eternal destiny will be decided by our response to Christ. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. And to reject him is to reject your only hope. So the proper response to Christ is to recognize him for who he is, the Son of God, to accept the salvation that he offers through his death on the cross and to follow him, to become a disciple of Jesus. And so I guess the first point of application here would be, are you a Christian? It's very simple, it's very basic. And yet uh, Simeon's uh, explanation here of this twofold response puts in clear contrast that your life depends and your eternal destiny depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. If you follow Christ, if you are committed to Christ, then you'll be saved. And if you reject him, as many did in Jesus' own day, many who saw his miracles and yet still rejected him and and refused to follow him, they will be judged eternally for that rejection. And so what will you do with Jesus? And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I think that applies to most people in this room. I hope everybody. Uh, Let me point out a phrase that's repeated twice. Maybe you caught this. 
Simeon is said to have been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And Anna spoke of Jesus to all who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. Very similar phrases there. These righteous saints were eagerly anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. They were waiting for him. They were longing for him to come. They were thinking about it. As Christians living today, we're supposed to be doing the same thing. We're supposed to be anticipating eagerly the arrival of Jesus Christ and his kingdom on earth. We're supposed to long for the return of Christ. Titus 2, uh, verse 11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's supposed to be the heart of a Christian. We're supposed to long for the coming of Jesus. So is this something that we think about? Is this something that we truly do? I'll have to admit this is a weakness of mine. I don't think very much about the coming of Christ. I don't find myself longing for his coming. I think we tend to be very self-focused as human beings, right? We focus on our lives and the accomplishments that we want to we achieve. And um, we don't tend to think much beyond that. We don't think, man, I can't wait for Jesus to come back and set up his kingdom. And maybe as, as people age, maybe that becomes more of a reality. That's what I've heard, at least. Uh, but for those of us who are young, this is a struggle because we're so focused on, uh, on the next you know, 40, 50, however, however many years we think we have. Uh, we don't think much about the coming of Christ. But that should be something that we long for, something that we seek. Remember the prayer of Jesus, his model prayer. He prays, thy kingdom come. Is that something you pray I think for most of us, we just, we don't do this. We're content to live in the world as we know it. And we don't eagerly anticipate and long for the coming of Jesus like Simeon and Anna did. So I want to get into here a few things. What does it reveal about a person when they long for and eagerly await the coming of Christ? And maybe the opposite would be revealed if we don't. And so you can make that application yourself. Number one, those who long for Christ's return show that they believe the promises of God. That's a very basic one, but... Uh, anybody who's longing for and awaiting the coming of Christ obviously believes that he's coming. And so maybe some of the reason that we don't is we don't actually believe the promises of God, that Jesus is coming and he will establish his kingdom on earth. So it, it starts with believing the prophecies of Jesus that he is coming again. I think the passing of time has turned many of us into skeptics. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here, and so it's easy for us to not to be skeptical that he's actually coming back. And it's interesting, this skepticism is actually prophesied in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3 says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? So they're doubting that Jesus is coming again. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this, Peter says, they are willingly ignorant of, that, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? It's interesting, Peter's application there. If Jesus is coming again, and if the world is going to end in this climactic way, where Christ uh, destroys the present age and establishes his kingdom, how should we live? He says we ought to live in holy lifestyles and godliness. Verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So again, this is supposed to be the heart of a Christian. We are supposed to long for the coming of Christ and his kingdom on earth, that day when all, all uh, evil will be eradicated and we'll live in a new earth and a new heaven with righteousness. We're supposed to long for this. But it starts with believing the promise of God. Again, Peter says there's some that are scoffers that say, I don't believe he's actually coming back. I mean, it's, it's been 2,000 years. Where is he at? And even that attitude is prophesied in Scripture. It's, it's amazing how, how um, just the Bible predicts so many things like that. And Peter's admonition to us is, no, we're supposed to be looking for, we're supposed to be hastening the day of God. So number one, those who long for Christ's return show that they believe that he's coming back. They believe the promises of God. Number two, those who long for Christ's return show that they are not satisfied with the fleeting pleasures of this life. Colossians 3 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. That's a very important verse for us. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. You will not long for the kingdom of God and the coming of Christ if you're in love with the world as it is today. We must see the brokenness of the world we live in and long for the kingdom of God to come. So number one, those who long for Christ's return show that they believe the promise of God. Number two, those who long for Christ's return show that they're not satisfied with the fleeting pleasures of this life. Number three, those who long for Christ's return show that they hate sin. I think if we're living in sin and we're enjoying it, we're not going to be looking forward to the coming of Christ. We're going to be so focused on our life right now and living it up and having fun but if we're frustrated with our, our sin and we long to be fully and completely set free from sin, that should bring us to long for the coming of Christ. Uh, Romans 8 says, Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. And he's saying there uh, that inwardly we're, we should be groaning for and longing for the day when we can be finally set free from sin. Uh, Philippians 3, our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We ought to be looking for Christ to come and to change our vile body into his glorious body. That's the hope that we have as Christians. So those who long for Christ's return show that they hate their sin. Number four, those who long for Christ's return show that they love him more than anything this world can offer. Second Timothy 4 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, 
and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Again, Philippians uh, chapter 1 says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I should be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better." Paul is saying there that I I enjoy my life, I enjoy serving God and doing things now, but to die and to be with Christ is far better. And that's not the attitude many of us have. Many of us fear death. We don't look forward to death. We want to extend our lives as long as possible. That's not a bad thing necessarily. Uh, But the attitude of Paul was, I just can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait to be with Christ. And that reveals a heart that loves Jesus Christ more than anything else. If you think in your heart. I, I want Jesus to return, but not until I get married. Or, or I want Jesus to return, but not until I have children, or until I achieve uh, this or that, or until I can retire. If those are the things you're thinking, that reveals a lack of value in Christ. If you treasure Jesus Christ above everything this world can offer, then you should say, like Paul, that, that to depart and be with Christ is far better than any of the pleasures of this world. So do you love him? Do you treasure him more as more important than anything or anybody else in the world? And one way to know if you really treasure him above other things in your life is do you long for his return? If you're seeking that and you're longing for that, that shows that, that Jesus Christ is more valuable to you than other things. Uh, Anna is, a, of course, a great expe- uh, example of this. She spent decades of her life fasting and praying for the coming of Christ. And if that sounds like a crazy concept to you, I mean, can you imagine fasting? I mean, going without food, uh, presumably for days, seeking Jesus' arrival? I mean, that, that seems crazy to some of us. We'd never do that. But listen to what Jesus says uh, in Luke chapter 5. He says, uh, I'm sorry, somebody asked him, uh, why do the, the, the disciples, the followers of John, fast often and make prayers? And likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. So the disciples of Christ did not fast while he was here. Look at verse 34. Jesus said unto them, Can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom, speaking of himself, shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. Jesus expected that when he was taken away from us, that followers of Christ would fast for his return, that we would so long for Jesus to come back that we'd be driven to fast and pray and seek the kingdom of God. And I'm just telling you, that's not my attitude most days. I don't think like that. I don't think many of us do. We're supposed to be fasting and longing for the coming of Christ, just like Anna. Anna's a perfect example of this. And that kind of longing shows how valuable he is to you. Uh, One more point I want to bring out here. Luke 2, verse 38. Anna, when she came and she heard the, the sayings of Simeon, says she gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him, to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. It's an interesting phrase. I was struck by that this week. Uh, She went around to those who were looking for the coming of Christ and told them that he was here. And so my question that popped in my mind was, how did she know who it was that was longing for his arrival? I mean, I don't think they had little, you know, stickers on their their chest saying, I'm one of the ones looking for Christ. But somehow it was evident. Uh, Anna just knew that that person and that person and that person, they're, they're the ones that are longing for Christ to come. I don't know exactly how that was evident to her, but somehow it was obvious. 
Uh, maybe it was by the way that they lived, like Anna. I mean, if anybody, it was pretty obvious it would be Anna. She's fasting. She's in the temple. She's praying and seeking the kingdom of God. But I think maybe their priorities signified whether they were those who were looking for the coming of Christ. I mean, again, somebody like Anna in the temple all the time clearly was not living for the temporary pleasures of this world. She was seeking the coming of Christ. It was obvious by her words. Those who seek the kingdom of God supremely can't hide it. It spills out into their life. It, it spills out into their conversation. And so do those who know us best sense that we are awaiting with eagerness the coming of Jesus? 1 John 3 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope, everybody who's looking forward to that day, purifieth himself, even as he is pure. As we grow in our love for Christ, may we also grow in our longing to be with him. May we not be content to go on living in this sinful world, but may we long with eagerness and set our affection on eternal things as we anticipate the coming of the kingdom of God. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. It was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in, in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Aser. She was of great age, had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him, to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. I want to give one more verse before we close. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. And anathema is a strong word in Greek that means accursed. Uh, let him be accursed if he doesn't love Jesus Christ. And then notice the last word there, maranatha. Maybe you've heard this before. It was a declaration. Uh, it's actually an Aramaic word that means, come Lord Jesus, come Lord it was a declaration that, uh, that people would speak off in the, the early centuries of Christianity. This was their sort of like a motto that they would say. This was a regular statement, come Lord. So when was the last time you said in your heart, Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.